Welcome to Album Club 500, the podcast where we review the top 500 albums of all time, according to Rolling Stone, a magazine. I'm a host. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm Tony Seven, and this is a podcast. <laughs> uh, well, I am one of your hosts, Miss World. You can call me 27. And I am James Poindexter, but you might remember my turn on Broadway as Jacob Schatz. That's a true fact, and today we are reviewing Live Through This by Hole and The Drifters' Golden Hits by The Drifters, fittingly enough. And these are records from 1994 and 1968, respectively, and they have nothing in common with each other, do they? I don't think so. There are songs about relationships on both of these. So uh, there's that. Wait. Um I think I got it. Okay. What do you got uh, for me? Hold on. Wait. Hold on. <laughs> do a little edit here. <laughs> are you fucking Are wait. you doing <laughs> Wait. On on so okay. So on the Drifters Golden Hits, there's a song called If You Cry, True Love, True Love. Hole is a band fronted by a woman named Courtney Love. That is a less tenuous connection than I expected from you. It's pretty bad, but... (laughs) They did put her last name in the title of a song twice, so... I'll take it. I mean, I think we'll have to take it. (laughs) It counts... Otherwise, these albums have nothing in common, and as you may expect from the content warning at the top of the episode, this is going to be a little bit of whiplash, folks. Yeah, because The Drifters is a 50s and 60s doo-wop R&B band, and Hole is Courtney Love's 90s alternative rock and grunge outfit, and there's a lot of heavy themes because of her uh, tumultuous, is is that the right word? Yep. T- tumultuous t- now that I can't say it uh, Back it uh troubled <laughs> <laughs> because of Courtney Love's troubled life at the time yep but it is in the order that allows us to have the drifters as a palate cleanser for the whole album so uh you got that yeah, going whole for you, at least yeah that's that's nice so Let's talk about Hole a little bit here. Let's talk about Courtney Love, because the name and the person are both a little uh, controversial for reasons that they probably shouldn't be. And I only say this because I have a pretty substantial mea culpa that I need to deliver alongside our review of this album. I, like... A good number of you may do upon hearing the name Courtney Love and going, oh, I have to do a Courtney Love album this episode. Originally went, hmm. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I guess we'll try it. Because I spent a good period of my youth unreasonably hating Courtney Love. Yeah. There's this perception that goes along with the 
admittedly with the suicide of the late Kurt Cobain, uh, that she was the the vastly more dangerous Yoko to Kurt's John Lennon. That she showed up and just ruined this perfectly good artist that we all loved. And how could she do this to us, and how could she do this to him, and she's a terrible person, etc., etc. That's basically a bunch of horse shit. Yeah. It's nonsense. For, for a couple different reasons. The first off was... Both Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love had some serious issues that they needed to work through individually and together. And that's that's just an honest statement about how those two were doing in the 90s. They had each other, they had a life that they were trying to build together, but they had some serious problems, many of it related to drug abuse, a lot of it just related to emotional dependency on each other, and... Other stuff that we just don't know about because they've got a personal life and they're human beings. And just the baggage that comes with being two rock stars. Right, yeah. And so it's to start off, it's not a case of Courtney Love coming in and ruining this idea of Kurt Cobain that we had. Yeah, that's ridiculous. And A lot of people think that. Right. People think that it's, it's... unfounded. It is completely unfounded, and we'll get into some of the reasons why it's unfounded on the on the content of these songs. Secondly, one of the reasons that I felt that particular way, and especially about going into the music of Courtney Love, is that there is a perception that Courtney Love isn't really punk. She was just this crazy chick that found her way to Kurt Cobain, got her hooks in him, and then there's the media perception of this person who's outside of the lifestyle or doesn't have the right cred to go along with someone like Kurt Cobain. And if you've listened to any of this album, you'll know that that is also horseshit. Yeah. (laughs) Because this album is fantastic. It is a great, both grunge and punky kind of album. It rocks really hard. The writing on all of these songs, the vast majority of which is done exclusively by Courtney Love, is fantastic. It's rough. It's Tough to get through sometimes. It is, as we shall say, challenging material. But it's about really harsh emotions going through the life of a person who is having a really rough time. And so it reflects that. It is personal. It is hardcore. It is heavy. And it's one of the most punk things that I've ever heard in my life. So once I got past that and realized, oh my god, of course she's got punk cred. Of course she's got grunge cred. I personally had to peel away the other layers of what else have I been wrong about regarding Miss Courtney Love? And the answer was a lot. And it's kind of shitty to build up this opinion of someone that is based purely on secondhand and media representations of that person. Because I was one. I was not even one. I was like nine months old when Kurt Cobain died. And yet I had this perception and this opinion on this person who was directly involved in Kurt Cobain's life, and it had no basis in reality. Yep. And that sucks. So, you know, if this ever gets back to Courtney Love, I personally apologize, because there's no reason to have that kind of opinion of her. Yeah, it really sucks how many people think that. Or people that think that she directly caused Kurt Cobain's suicide and stuff uh, like that. Yeah, that's that it's is horrible. just the worst. I hate that. Yeah, because Courtney Love was really cool and a great musician, 
I mean, she still is. She's still right. around. Yes. Yeah. Um, she she's great. And apparently, Hole's first album, Pretty on the Inside, is actually an even more personal record than this one, which was a bit of a shock to me, um, because Courtney Love was uh, was on the record saying that. For this one, she just wanted to make a good rock record instead of a really personal, introspective look at herself, which is pretty much what I thought this record was, but apparently not. Yeah. (laughs) There's a a lot of songs on this thing that are inspired directly by things that happened in her life and her own feelings, obviously, but... Mission accomplished on making a good rock record, but also... (laughs) Yeah. Apparently not as much as on their first record, which was a lot more apparently raw and hardcore which I kind of want to listen to it. It kind of sounds like it's a sort of situation like Bleach by Nirvana, which Mm. is a lot less of a radio-friendly record and much harder-edged. Yep. But this record has some soft edges on it and some hard stuff. It it kind of goes back and forth, and it's a really nice balance of the two styles, I think. The band here wanted to show that they do have a soft side. Um Notably on the song Softer Softest, which (laughs) kind of directly references that. That'll get you there. Let's dig into the track by track. Yes. First up, we have Violet. As an opener, it really worked. And from the get-go, I had a lot of questions to ask myself about my current perception of Courtney Love. Because, oh my god, this rocks really hard. It's a really good grunge song. Yeah, it starts kind of quiet and in the chorus it gets really loud and the guitars are just going off with their power chords really loud and Courtney's yelling and screaming. She has a really great, just raw, harsh vocal, I think. You hear that a bit on Hole's number one most popular song, which was a big radio hit, uh, Celebrity Skin, from a few years later. But it's it seems a bit more restrained than it is here. She really has no... Uh, she really has no reservations about just being loud and raucous on this record, it seems, which is really cool because it's cool to see a, a woman vocalist being wild and, um, you know, just very, uh, very raw and uncompromising. Yeah, girl punk is best punk, honestly. Like, I like punk music in, in general. I wouldn't call myself a fan, necessarily, because I don't know the scene well enough, but every punk album that I've heard, I've been like, yeah, sure. But yep. <laughs> uh, punk punk bands with female vocalists always are just, like, a lot more kick-ass, in my opinion. They just... I don't know. There's something about it that they rock a little bit harder. And... Yeah. That happens here. Gotta... Check out that Riot Girl movement of the late 80s and 90s. We will which... actually bring that up later, uh, because yeah. that, is, that is super important to some of the ethos of this album, <laughs> weirdly enough. Yep. Uh, this song is apparently about Courtney Love's former relationship with Billy Corgan, which is interesting. And yeah. it's, you know, pretty bitter. It's kind of about knowing when to say no. And there's also some sarcastic sounding lines in the chorus where she's yelling, go on, take everything, take everything. I want you to, mm-hmm. um, which I, it's pretty clearly sarcastic, I think. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there's some, some nice imagery where she says like, 
the sky was made of amethyst and all the stars were just like little fish. That's the first two lines. Kind of brings up a clear image of how she thought life would be like with this man. And it turned out not so great. Uh, Another favorite line of mine is uh, when they get what they want and they never want it again. Lines like this are broad, but direct in hitting a very particular kind of emotion. The language used here is pretty generic, but you feel a very specific way when you recognize how it feels to to embody that kind of a line. And there are a lot of lines like that on this album, and I think it's one of Courtney Love's strengths as a songwriter. Yeah, definitely. And it's good to know that uh, after these events, Billy Corgan and Courtney Love stayed friends because he actually helped her write some of the songs on their next record. Hey. So that's fun. Good for them. <laughs> and I also kind of thought this song might have been riffing on the Smashing Pumpkins style a bit, which is kind of funny, if true. <laughs> I don't know if that's intentional, but it's kind of fun. Um, so the next track is called Miss World, and it's immediately a softer song, but it's later like in the track... jam. Yeah, it is. And it's got some nice sounding chords. They're not standard major chords. I, I don't know exactly what kind of chords they are, but they're interesting in their sound. And it, it builds up, and eventually the electric guitars kick in, and it gets really heavy. But before that, th- this track kind of made me get a little bit down on Courtney Love's vocal style a bit, but I got over it pretty quickly. Okay. And it especially works on this track after I heard it a few times, but it's just the whole kind of moaning style, you know, where she kind of goes off key and... I get where you're coming from. That's the way that I feel about Kurt Cobain's vocals a lot of the time, and I don't know if it's completely justified, but it's the kind of thing where, like, if I'm feeling a little bit down on it, I just kind of like, okay, but would I feel this way... If it were a different vocalist that I that I know, like just trying to compare right. it to other stuff that I've heard before, and then I go, well, probably not. I think it's probably fine. Yeah, no, like I said, I got over it, and I think yeah. it's good. But at first, you know, just hearing her sing, "I miss world," you know, it's it's a bit much at first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very but, much that. Um, this song is clearly very personal, and it's about a struggle and her problems with self esteem and. The pills, obviously. Yep, that's pretty uh, pretty blatant in this one. Yep. A key line in here is, Watch me break and watch me burn. No one is listening, my friends. And then, yeah. Yeah. the next lyric. <laughs> I, I think it's really cool because you've got that contrast of watching versus listening. Watching being a very passive thing, you're... Like, you can see something from a distance and not be a part of it, but then listening is getting in on the, on, like, but then listening is getting right in with it and just, like, being a part of it. You are now a part of the conversation, and you're invested in it. And so you have a lot of people witnessing her life and her relationship and whatever through, like, media lenses or just generally at a distance, but then there's no one that's really getting in there and talking to her and and hearing what she's trying to say Mm -hmm. yep and then at the end of the song courtney is repeating the lines i made my bed i'll lie in it i made my bed i'll die in it 
which is seems to be implying that she at least at the time was blaming herself for these problems she was having and yeah for her life falling apart and i think obviously the fact that she survived means she probably realizes this and um you know wrote this song based on that feeling although actually those lines were written by the bassist Kristen Pfaff, who had written them for another song in an earlier band she was in called Janitor Joe, which obviously never took off. (laughs) (laughs) Never heard about Janitor Joe, but but yeah, that was a thing. It's a great song, this one. It's a good one. I like it. Next up, we've got Plump. Yep. This is a song about uh, body standards, I'd say. And also a little bit of unhealthy relationships and media perceptions. Um, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, there's on the surface level there is the body standards, which is definitely the the imagery that's being used here. Chorus is uh, I'm eating you. I'm overfed. Your milk's in my mouth. It makes me sick. Uh, milk here is a term that is used quite often on this album by Courtney Love. And it is actually a reference to heroin in a lot of cases. Genius helpfully explains that I'm Eating You and I'm Overfed are actually a reference to an Anne Sexton poem called The Ballad of the Lonely Masturbator. Ah, good title. Uh, they are eating each other, they are overfed. At night alone, I marry the bed. Wow. Which is a f- pretty... That's a line. Yep. Um, well, that's a, that sure is a line to allude to. Yep. But what it what it basically means is that she and Kurt, in this case, are sort of wrapped up completely in each other to the point where it's not too healthy for everybody outside of it. Um, or at the very least, that is one level deeper. The next level past that is, this is what the media was saying about them. Basically, they're completely out of control, wild children, uh, doing drugs all the time. And uh, a persistent rumor that came up was that Courtney Love was using heroin while she was pregnant with their child. What actually happened from the vast majority of reports is that she, before she knew she was pregnant, she had been doing heroin. And then she stopped as soon as she figured out she was pregnant because, yeah. Um, But the media took the headline of Courtney Love, Heroin, and Pregnant and made a bunch of money off of that. Yeah. Definitely exploited that one. Right. So, this is from that media perspective of these are two people who are completely out of control, wrapped up in each other, and don't give a damn about anybody else, uh, to the point of damaging themselves and everybody around them. And so, it's not 100% clear whether... I think there's definitely some overlap where she recognizes that there are destructive behaviors that are coming out of this relationship, but also I think it is turned up to 11 to act as a satire of the the common perception of them just being completely out of control. And, you know, that makes sense because this song instrumentally is kind of out of control in that it is a really hard punk rock song, basically, and yep. the vocals are manic and yelling and some of Courtney's best performance, I think. It's quite good. Yeah, she really wails on this, and it's just really good. And I, every time I think about this, I'm like, I can't believe I put this off for so long. I can't believe that I didn't <laughs> give this a shot, because it's really good music. Yeah, I just didn't know. I mean, I had found out that I did know one 
song by Hole, which was Celebrity Skin, which I didn't, I had no idea it was by them, but it was a really popular song at the time. And it, you know, still gets radio play now. So I didn't know any of this stuff. <laughs> That's for sure. I had no bearing. But the next track is called Asking For It. And this one is pretty obviously an allusion to consent and rape. The song was inspired by an incident that happened uh, when when Hole was on tour with Mudhoney and Courtney Love had stage-dived into the audience and the audience was pretty much going crazy and groping her and tearing her clothes off and she ended up naked out there in the crowd and she obviously felt that this was not right and... Uh, the song Asking For It kind of mocks the uh, mocks the idea of a rapist defending themselves with she was asking for it. And in the chorus she says, was she asking for it? Was she asking nice? If she was asking for it, did she ask you twice? And it's this really sarcastic sort of dark mocking tone. And the song itself is this dark grunge track that uh, is pretty quiet. It's really intense, which fits the tone of the lyrics perfectly, obviously. And in an odd way, it's kind of... It sounds kind of beautiful. Yeah. Which is another layer of intensity on top of it. There's... Oh my god, this song is really heavy, but also really poetic. And it's that contrast that encapsulates her feelings on the event because obviously she wasn't asking for that obviously she wasn't looking for that kind of attention and or looking for any of that sort of behavior and it's horrifying that it happened to her but when she's going through it and unpacking the incident she almost asks herself the question well i mean i stage dive in, i stage dove into a group of crazy fans and i have all this popularity and all this fame like, so on some level, what did I expect? What was this? And the result that I'm pretty sure every reasonable observer would say, well, no, of course not, you didn't expect them to go that far. But when you're going through abuse, and when you're unpacking abuse, and when you're trying to reckon with abuse, those are the kinds of questions that you ask yourself. Was it my fault? Because if it was my fault, then I need to shut up and we can just bury this and never worry about it again. Um, and the turnaround here is in the middle of the song where we get the refrain, if you live through this with me, I swear that I will die for you. And right. Which that, is where the title of the album comes from. Right. Right. And that is a little bit more direct and just saying, look, whatever this was, whatever it was, I need someone to be there with me for it. And it's it's the heaviest thing that you can go through, honestly. It, it's at the yeah. very least way up there, and you need someone to help you get through it. And you have those extremes when you're trying to correct for this other kind of extreme. You have the, I will die for any person who can help me survive this. Yep. It's really powerfully written it is it sounds amazing 
and the song yes. is just absolutely phenomenal in every respect. Definitely one of the standout highlights of the album. Yep. It's a great track. Uh, I would say listen to it to get a feel for this record, I'd, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. It's really representative. I mean, definitely content warning on it, but it's, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a very good encapsulation. I say that a lot, but it, it works for describing what Hole is and what this album is. Yes. And the next track is called Jennifer's Body. And this one is also dark, but in a different and more uh, direct way, I'd say. Yeah. They made a movie called Jennifer's Body, and I'm trying to figure out if it was actually just based on this song. Or was the song from that? No, the the movie <laughs> was made, it's a Megan Fox joint from, oh, like, okay. a few years back. Gotcha. Yeah, it might have been in reference to this. Yeah. It is about necromancy, and this isn't about that, but it's, like, close. It's got, like, dead parts. <laughs> Yeah. Jennifer's body to me feels a little bit punkier. It's a little bit more bass driven, which I kind of liked. Yeah, definitely. And I like the clean guitar that's playing these punk riffs in the beginning and in the chorus it kicks in with the distortion and gets really loud and crazy. Yeah. It's very fun. There's also a subtext to this that's not just about a murder case. And in the lyrics, he keeps you in a box by the bed, alive but just barely. He said, I'm your lover, I'm your friend, I'm purity, hit me again. And that kind of stuff alludes to an abusive relationship of this man keeping his woman captive, so to speak. Yep. And not letting her do what she wants and being very possessive. And that's the comparison between that and the Jennifer's body, you know, this woman being murdered. It's... Murdering her on the inside. But yeah, pretty dark song. Yeah. But a lot more upbeat than some of the other tracks here, so... It is, and it's very good to listen to. Yeah. Next up is Doll Parts. And this is a song that is actually about Kurt Cobain. And uh, just for a little bit of context on the timeline of this, because um, all of the songs were written and recorded... In 1994, before uh, Kurt Cobain was found dead. And the album came out after that. So there's a little bit of dissonance, and the songs are recontextualized after Kurt's suicide. But when we talk about the content, we need to make it clear that these were all written before that. So... I mean, both Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain talked about suicide often in their music, and as, as I understand it, just generally. Yeah. Um, but all of these lyrics need to be taken in the context that Kurt Cobain was alive and well and was hoped to be doing better when these were written. Yeah, I, I had assumed this was written while he was alive because it doesn't seem to have the weight of a suicide, but it definitely yeah. has weight to it. There are other tracks on here that people, Courtney Love herself actually says that I'm not psychic, but my songs are. Um, <laughs> and what I get out of that is basically you see a person breaking down as they're doing it. And before they get to that state. So that's why it would reflect that kind of 
behavior. Yeah, definitely. Um, people have all these conspiracy theories that are nonsense, and they would probably use something like this as evidence. But yeah, it's just it's a coping ridiculous. mechanism to deal with a celebrity passing in circumstances that they can't control. Yeah, and it sucks. But we also need to make it well and truly clear that it's bullshit. This song was actually written in 1991 before they started dating. Now that's interesting. Yeah, that's really different. <laughs> and you get that because it talks about longing for this person that is distant. And it's, it is interesting because it's released while they're in the middle of their relationship, you know, after they're married, after they've had a kid even. So you get this idea that there is a distance that she's getting from Kurt that is not unlike what she was experiencing at the very beginning of their relationship. Because to have them tell it, Kurt kind of pushed away from getting in a relationship with Courtney because he wasn't sure if he was ready for that. He wasn't sure if he was stable for it or whatever. And he, but then they started hanging out and having more things in common. And lo and behold, they really hit it off. And instrumentally, this song is a more of a soft ballad, fittingly, because it is pretty much a love song. Yep. Um, with some dark tones, and the phrase you hear the most is, "Yeah, they really want you. They really want you, but I do too," because Kurt was, of course, rising to stardom at the time, and uh, it's kind of a complicated situation to be in love with someone who that is happening to. That's pretty much what's going on here. Yeah. This was also the only track on the album that was written entirely by Courtney Love without co-writing credits to Eric Erlinson, the lead guitarist, or others. But uh, it, obviously, th this song wouldn't have co-writing credits. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the next track is called Credit in the Straight World, and this is actually a cover of a track by Young Marble Giants, who were an, uh, a Welsh post-punk band in the late 70s. Uh, we get a, getting a lot of that on these records recently. Yeah, post-punk seems to occupy this niche where it's like, and I'm pretty sure I've said this before, it was influential to a lot of smaller bands, but it didn't have that sort of lasting, huge impact uh, that, like, would define a genre or whatever. Yeah, but this this cover is really well done. I never heard of the band that made it, but I probably should check them out. <laughs> yep. yep. Uh, they, the, the guitar tone, I have to say, I, I'm basically this whole album, but it really stood out in this song because it is so... It, it is such a punk track with the lots of uh, tension building and releasing and heavy riffs and fast rhythms. I really, really dug the, the guitar work. I just thought it sounded so crisp and so clean, yet yeah. so dirty at the same time. <laughs> right. Which I would describe the, the rest of the album that way too, but th this one, it really stood out. The intro for this song is taken from another whole song that I guess was on their earlier album, and it's pretty trippy, and I dig it. Yeah, I really, I really dig this band in general. Yeah, I think we both agree that we we dig hole. Yeah, I dig hole. I dig hole. I really dig hole. That's mm -hmm. so stupid. 
<laughs> we uh, kept saying it we before were, the review. We were waiting for it. It had to come up somewhere. We knew that we were gonna. We just didn't realize it would be like this. <laughs> I think like you, this. you didn't even mean. I, I don't think you even realized you were saying. Dig I wrote in that it way. multiple times on this notes sheet that I had for this episode. So it's just part of our vernacular. That's true. But but also and this one it's special. Uh. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Next up, we've got Softer Softest. And it's an apt title because this is a soft song. Yeah, pretty much through and through. There's no part where this gets really loud and rocky. It, it does have some distorted electric guitar later on, but Courtney never yells in this track as she does in a lot of others. Yeah. Um, this was kind of, you know, along with Doll Parts, whole showing that they can make soft songs. They can be serious songwriters and not just a punk band. Actually, that reminds me of the quote that we wanted to bring up at some point during this review about Courtney Love selling out, quote-unquote, with this album, which right. this album does not sell out in any respect. It still has no. a shitload of grunge and punk cred, but some of her diehard fans and some of Hole's diehard fans saw this transition to poppier-sounding songs or a little bit more formalized songwriting, I guess, as selling out. Um, and she has a great quote on that. Total fans, but every time we'd go into one of our pop songs, they'd start chanting, Don't do it! Sell out! Girls were throwing Riot Girl zines at me and stuff. I was like, uh, I'm really glad you're here, girls, but check it out, I can write a bridge now. <laughs> Which is so true, because <laughs> as I understand, Hole and Courtney Love were associated vaguely with the Riot Girl movement, but they did not actually play the same style of music. They weren't part of it. Yeah. But... A lot of the fans came from that because they liked the raw edge of their first album and the fact that they were a hard, you know, a really hard hitting band with a female vocalist who goes wild and crazy, um, which is a thing to be valued. Yes, but absolutely. That also an artist can do what they fucking want. <laughs> <laughs> and they clearly even didn't even lose their edge. They just wanted to try something new. No, yeah, these songs are as edgy as they've ever been. Yeah, this record didn't even generate a huge radio hit like their next record would. So what are they even complaining about? <laughs> I feel like the same thing also had happened with Nirvana when they made Nevermind. Yeah. Um, it's the same exact story, basically. Speaking of, you can also hear Kurt Cobain's backup vocals on this track. Um, you can hear him doing some vocal harmonies and, and oohs and ahs on the back of this. Which we don't talk about much on this album, but the vocal harmonies really add something to it. Yeah, definitely. Like, harmonies aren't super common in grunge, but it's a really nice layer on top of everything else, and it works to great effect. These songs just, they keep their edge, but they have that nice quality to them. And this song definitely keeps the edge sharp in the lyrics as well, because this is pretty much about Courtney Love's troubled childhood with parental abuse and being the girl that always smelled like pee in your class. She claims it is an autobiographical song and not about former MTV producer Tabitha Soren, which I am not sure if is true or if she said that, that as a joke. 
She probably said that as a joke because of someone she disliked. I'm guessing this person doesn't even have a Wikipedia article. But, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's pretty much about troubled childhood. And also it was that originally titled P-Girl due to the the line P-Girl gets the belt. Which is a little tough to reckon with. Yeah, it's it's a heavy one. And it's definitely uh, a troubled song. And it's a little bit hard to listen to because of lines like that sometimes. And because it doesn't really have that catharsis of like a really heavy payoff at the end. Yeah. Uh, she she alludes to milk some more in this track. Um, your milk makes me mine. Your milk is so sick. Your milk has a die. Your milk is so dick. Your milk has a die. Your milk has a dick. Which is pretty abstract, I'd say. Yeah. Not really sure what she's saying there, but it's clearly alluding to heroin and got over my head. Otherwise, yeah, pretty much. But it's not that. You know, it's clearly a very personal track. Yep. Next up is She Walks On Me, and this somehow just, like, rocketed to the top of my favorite songs on the album. Awesome. Because <laughs> it's just, it's so cool. It's really hard rock and start to finish, and it it just, it, it sounds really good. I don't even have a whole lot of other qualitative stuff to say about it. It just, it rocks. Yeah, it's pretty much a balls-to-the-wall punk track with these distorted vocals of Courtney just yelling rhythmically. This, if anything, sounds like Riot Girl, I'd say. Yeah, um, pretty close. A bit more refined, but because of their commercial sellout status at the time, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke, but... <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of uh, words on this with a lot of anger and bitterness to them. There's something so beautiful and just fantastic about the opening line. Geeks do not have pedigrees or perfect punk rock resumes. And I'm like, oh my god. Oh, you're so right. This is about me and you're right. (laughs) (laughs) She's basically yelling this in a chant over these punk riffs and it's great. It's great. Not much else to say on this track, really. Yeah, it's good. It's almost one of my favorite tracks. I think probably second to asking for it. But it's just fantastic. I love it. And next up is probably my favorite track on the record, or one of them. Uh, I Think That I Would Die, which starts with some very Nirvana-influenced guitar lines and sort of a start-and-stop rhythm with Courtney singing these low sort of the Kurt Cobain-esque, I guess I'd have to say. They really uh, are. V- vocal styles. I want my but, baby wearing yeah. that. Like, it's it's right there alongside Nirvana. Yeah, and it's obviously them, those two being so close together, they're going to rub off on each other. And there's also more allusions to Milk on this track that happens throughout a lot of the album. Um... Uh, but in this case, she's saying there is no milk. This is also about the loss of custody of her child. Um, ah. Francis Bean Cobain, I believe that's how you pronounce all of that, uh, <laughs> was the child that Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love had. Uh, when the media story broke, they actually lost custody of their child and had to go to court to testify about their behavior. And uh, they did 
lose custody of their kid, which is a tough thing to go through for anybody, basically. And yeah. uh, this is a sort of response to that, which is to say, there's no fucking heroin. I'm not doing heroin because I'm trying to sense. I'm trying to get back. You know, I'm trying to be the kind of person who can raise this kid. And now it, it, it's odd because when I think about this album, I think of the fact that, like, there's this infant and there are these two young parents. Francis Bean Cobain is two years older than I am. Wow. <laughs> so that kind of puts it in perspective as to, as to where this album is at. And uh, now, thankfully, I can happily report that they're doing fine. She and her mom oh, have a great, great. relationship. Uh, she's also a weirdo art kid, like her both awesome. of her parents, which is super cool. <laughs> um, a little yes. bit more wealthy than either of them started out, but hey, you work with what you got. And uh, <laughs> But yeah, it's... I just want to say that because there's a lot of, like, negativity and powerfully negative emotions on this album, which is fine and is something to be explored. But when I have good news, I feel beholden to share it with you. Yeah. No, that's definitely good to hear. And I'm glad you pointed out the, the actual significance of the line, there's no milk, because clearly I did not properly decode it. Yeah, I mean, the it's, time to it's stuff that I it. had to look up and found out through other things. A lot of these lyrics are not what they are on the face of them. Yeah. Uh, but I really like this track because uh, the, like I said, it, it does sound Nirvana esque, and I really like Nirvana. Um, That'll do. But it. on its own merits, it's just a great track. It has some great lines, great chord changes, and instrumental. Um, it's just well done. Yeah. Well done, Hole. Good job. <laughs> Next up, we've got Gutless, and this one is sort of finding strength in defiance. A lot of these tracks are sort of about wallowing in it, or at least coming to terms with it, dealing with it. This is just, hey, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely that sort of fuck you track that I kind of love, and it has uh, more punk riffs, and these ones are a little bit more subdued and laid back, and it's it gets intense in the chorus and the bridge and stuff, and it's uh, very good, very good to hear. Yep. And uh, one of my favorite lines is on here, and it's, I don't really miss God, but I sure miss Santa Claus. Love that. That's a very, very <laughs> solid line. Oh, my God. <laughs> Again, just little things that, simple language that evokes a very specific emotion. Worked out really well. Yeah, definitely. And Courtney's vocals get really raw on this when she's screaming the title, Gutless. I uh, obviously can't recreate it yep. to give you an idea. I would not ask you to. <laughs> But she really wails it, and it's good. Uh, she has a really great just growl, that gravelly yell. It's, yeah. It's awesome. And then we're on our last track. It's listed as Rockstar. It's actually a song called Olympia, but the album artwork and everything had already been printed, and they decided to swap the song Rockstar out with a different song called Olympia. And so now this track is kind of called Rockstar. Yeah, I guess it's just named Rockstar <laughs> now because, man, whatever, it's fine. It it works. It yeah. makes sense. Maybe I, I don't know if you could find the song Rock, the actual song Rockstar, somewhere on a B sides record or something. I don't know, but this is Rockstar now. <laughs> <laughs> and this is like we were talking about a little bit earlier. Courtney loves 
sarcastic sort of mockery of the Riot Girl movement that she is frequently associated with. And this song's pretty kind of a funny satire of that. It's really interesting to me because the first time that I listened to it, I was like, oh my god, I can't believe this is the closer. Because I <laughs> I hate it. Like, I, <laughs> I think I'd have to listen to it again now, but, like, I really, really hated this song the first couple times that I listened to it. Because it does this sort of vapid thing that I think a lot of people end up associating with, like, the the idea of what of who Courtney Love is. And so, on the one hand, it's like, I don't like how this sounds. This sounds like a bad one to me. But also, it's like, uh, like, really, you're gonna... This this is what you're gonna cap off your whole thing with? Your whole deal with? You're gonna... Your whole just, thing? Like, this is... Yes. The whole record? The whole record. This is what you cap <laughs> off the whole record with. Fuck, same... <laughs> Look, we did dig, and then we had to do the whole record. That's fair. All we right. had to do both. But I'm like, is this really what you want to do? And then I read that it was a satire, and I'm like, oh. Oh, fuck, I'm supposed to hate it. Well, <laughs> I now actually what love am I... It. Hmm. Hmm. I actually really love it, because... I know. It's pretty funny, and it's a really fun rockin' track. And I, I guess I like Riot Girl. Okay. And this is... Making fun of it, but in a way that I like and it's fun to listen to. Yeah, I don't know that I even hate Riot Girl. It's just this particular track, it's really just the opening lines that then get inserted later in the song that's, well, I went to school in Olympia, (laughs) and it's like, on the one hand, that's pretty fucking funny now, but also, it's very bad for me to listen to. It sounds real bad to me, (laughs) and I can't... It's one of those things where I just have to admit that I'm a square and say that it's just very personal preference. It's not written poorly. It is a very strong satire of the movement because... I mean, I think it's written poorly on purpose. Well, yeah. I know. <laughs> Which makes it written well. Right, exactly. That's where it goes. But yeah, I care about entertainment and construction. So, like, the construction of this, fantastic. Personally, whether or not I'm entertained by it, I just want to die. <laughs> like, I just can't handle it. I think it's a really fun track. I know. And I like when she's screaming, make me real, fuck you, make me sick, fuck you, make me real, fuck you. That's great. <laughs> That's, that part is great. That is strong. And the whole idea of this critiquing the, the half-assed revolution idea of Riot Girl as it's implemented poorly, I guess, is, is what it's trying to say here. Yeah. But there's this revolution. You can't just say revolution and then not do anything. You can't you can't be an activist for the idea of activism. That's not real. That's not a thing. Right. Yeah, this is Courtney Love's statement that she's not Riot Girl. I'm not associated with that movement. Sorry. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel. Thanks for showing uh, up, girls, but we can ride a bridge now. I love that quote so much. Yeah. <laughs> it really gets at the heart of this song and the album as a whole. Because it's... It's just so damn good. Live yeah, Through This is a record. fantastic album. I definitely want to listen to Hole's first album, probably their next couple albums as well. I don't really know anything about the, the other two, but they're probably good. Yeah, I believe it. Probably good. Uh, the latest one is actually from 2010, so... I mean, that's not recent anymore, but it's pretty new, relatively. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. not... 
from the 90s like their other three. But yeah, so check out this record if you want some hard-edged, heavy punk. Heed that content warning and check it out if you want. It's very good. And that'll do it for this record. And after a short break, we'll be back talking about The Drifters' Golden Hits. So stay tuned. Album Club 500. We're now on the second album of today's episode, The Drifters' Golden Hits by The Drifters. Funny how that works. And here, <laughs> and here we have another compilation album. This one's much, much shorter than the last couple we did. Mostly by virtue of the songs, which are shorter and more straightforward. Average length of track on this is probably in the two and a half minute range. Yeah, pretty much... That all of them, like the longest one is 302. So that's just kind of how songs of this style were, I yeah. feel. These R&B and doo-wop singles. And really, it is indicative of the singer group style. Now, before we get too deep into it, I gotta say, at the end of last episode, we said, we don't know a darn thing about these. I was wrong <laughs> about the Drifters, because I listened to a bunch of 50s, 60s, and 70s radio... And, uh, the Drifters and, like, half of the songs on this album were staples of DJs for that. Yeah, you definitely can't have 50s and 60s without the Drifters, because they had so many singles, a lot of hits. Obviously, these 12 tracks are just a small selection of their hits. Um, And this was back in a time when, unless you were the Beatles, Bob Dylan, and the Rolling Stones, or the Who... Your music was pretty much mostly released in singles, and that's how it was mostly consumed, uh, 45-inch records. So you would get compilation albums if you wanted an LP, and this was one from 1968, uh, pretty much post the main era of the Drifters, which they had a few eras, but... This is into the second era, if you will. The second era is characterized most strongly by the presence of lead vocalist Ben E. King, who you almost certainly know from the song Stand By Me. Yeah, and a lot of people actually think that the Drifters did that song, apparently, but no, it was a Ben E. King solo joint. Which is actually pretty funny now that I think about it, because Ben E. King is the only actual singer on that song, so... I'm not sure why they attributed it to the Drifters. Yeah, it's if anything, it's the Drifter. <laughs> or it's a Drifter. A Drifter, yes. Which, there are a lot of Drifters. So many. On this album alone, usually the Drifters average about five to six guys in their lineup. They're a singer group, so they have a bunch of harmonies and a bunch of different places in the band. But they average five to six in their typical lineup. There are... Many, many people. It looks like more than 20 different folks singing as part of, as being part of the Drifters on this album. Yeah, and to just list off some of the notable ones as criteria by, if they have Wikipedia articles, there's 
Ben E. King, Billy Davis, Johnny Moore, and Charlie Thomas, who must have some sort of career outside of the Drifters if they have Wikipedia articles, or they were just really well known for those very famous songs that the Drifters did, which are many. The members of the Drifters throughout several of their lineups that were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988 were Clyde McFadder, who is the who was one of the original founding members. Ben E. King, Rudy Lewis, Johnny Moore, Bill Pinckney, Gerhard Thrasher, and Charlie Thomas. That dude... That dude's last name is Thrasher. That is pretty sweet, <laughs> actually. There's a good another crossover name hit for uh, these two albums. <laughs> awesome. So, um, yeah, there's... Pretty much just good-ass R&B and doo-wop on this record, as you would expect. Probably stuff you you would recognize if you heard it and you didn't know it was by the Drifters, as was the case for us. Yep. Because how would you know with so many different singers? How would you know it's the same group? But it is, technically. And also, confusing the matter, there were a lot of singer groups similar to the Drifters, a lot of imitators, a lot of contemporaries... That all had a bunch of songs that all kind of sounded like this. So... Yeah. And they were even written by some of the same guys. We'll get into that, but the composers for these songs are most often not the Drifters. In fact, I'm not entirely sure that there are any Drifters penned songs on this album, because that's not really how these singer groups worked, or even how music used to work in general. Yeah. It was the norm to have ghostwriters at the time. And they never even called them ghostwriters. They just wrote the songs and gave them to the guys to sing. It it wasn't a thing that people thought about. That was just how it worked. So it was a yep. different time. Let's get into the track by track. And as we go through these tracks, we'll also mention some of the composers, if they're particularly meaningful, because there are some big names in the composers list that we found. Yeah. So the first track... Is called There Goes My Baby. Oh, it's ah, I love all of these tracks are very, so very good. singable, and we are going to just <laughs> really hope you don't mind us singing because that might happen a bit. Yeah, it, it probably will, <laughs> as shown. But this <laughs> this one starts out with you know your typical fifties chords. Well, actually, this one is from nineteen sixty. Ooh. <laughs> but so it's all specifically not the 50s chords. Yes, but it's all that style. <laughs> um and it has this really nice string part that you would recognize probably. The string part is indicative of the Drifters style because almost every single one of these tracks has a string-based bridge that soars in between the last couple of choruses. <laughs> yeah. They're very good. It's very Disney-esque, kind of saccharine sweetness. Yes. It's good stuff. Also, it opens up with acapella. Well, not really acapella, but a uh, vocal harmony. Yes. Because yeah. there is instrumental accompaniment to it. Right. But, yes. <laughs> what you mean to say is there's a wordless vocal part that is sung in the intro. Yes, but there's not, like, a pithy way to phrase that. So my brain went, acapella! And I'm like, well, no, that's not right, brain. Say it anyway! 
it, it would be a cappella if there were no instruments, which you could say about basically any song ever. <laughs> that's just that's just the case. <laughs> you just made a tautology. It's it's doo wop is what you're looking for. Yes, it is doo wop, and it's <laughs> oh, it's so good. All the members of the group just come together to make this really beautiful intro part, and then Ben E. King soars over over the rest of the track, and it's beautiful. And the chorus of it is the backup vocals singing, There goes my baby, while Ben E. King just sings his woes and yeahs, which is kind of unconventional for the time, because you're supposed to have words in your chorus. Yep. But I'll take it. Yeah, it's really it's really nice, actually. The verse is more than make up for the lack of those words, because they're very good. Yeah, it's just a typical kind of love song. And that's kind of what we'll end up saying about a lot of these tracks, but... Look, yeah. it was the 50s and 60s. It's what you had for pop music. They were just making songs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for mass Kinda consumption. It, honestly. It's not that important. But the next track is called If You Cry... True love, true love. And this one also starts with would-be acapella if there were no instruments. It's a lot smoother, I think. It's It's got, well, yeah, the bum, 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 bum. And it would be an instrumental if there were no vocals. Oh, true. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's stupid. <laughs> All right, we're done with that. We're going to put this bit in a little box, mail it to ourselves, and hit it with Smash a hammer. Smash it with a hammer. Yep. This track is smoother with a lot more bell tones, but the same percussion, bass, and, and the soaring strings over top, but it's still firmly in the realm of typical drifter's fashion. And there's a different vocalist than Benny King, but hell if I could tell you which one this is. Yeah, that's one of the problems with these vocal groups with constantly shifting lineups. Unless you have the album in front of you with the lighter notes, there's very little way to tell. <laughs> yeah, it, you could find each one online if you search them up, but it's it's a lot. Yep. <laughs> it, especially for a compilation album, all these songs are from different eras. Uh, it's a great song. There's There are, there's like a glockenspiel part that's really nice sort of twinkly and it's a very sweet love song yeah with nice melodies and not a lot of guitar on this one there's actually more guitar on other tracks sort of to add flavor it's never really the main instrument yeah you can pick out a rhythm guitar yeah this one's a lot more string and bell focused yep next up is dance with me Oh, hold me closer, closer and closer. And, it, oh, it's got a suitably dancey beat to go along with it, and the violin is really weepy. It is a little bit weepy, yeah. This one kind of gives me some lounge singer vibes from the lead vocalist. Yeah, um, this is Benny King again. Right. Um, he does sort of a, a Sinatra-esque uh, vibe here. The doo-wop backup vocals are very fun to sing along with. It's... Rhythmic doot doos, <laughs> as you'll hear a lot. <laughs> I love the the words that we use to describe just what these sounds are, because like in context yeah, the they're beautiful music. But like we just have to describe it as like, yeah, they do the doot doos. <laughs> I love. I like it when they do the doot doos. Yeah, when they get the bomb bomb bombs. 
Oh, I love the bomb bombs. And don't the even wo- get me started on the ooh woo woos. The ooh woo woo. Oh, the woyoyoyos. Yeah. It's real <laughs> yeah, nice. Good stuff. Real good Real good stuff. Like it. Who are these people? I love them. Duh, so- bears. <laughs> 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 oh, these are the these are the kindest Bears fans in existence. <laughs> what, what can I say? They love their R and B. Yeah, it stands for Rhythm and Bears. <laughs> da Rhythm and Bears. <laughs> da Drifters. <laughs> da Drifters. <laughs> oh, okay. Anyway, this song is lovely. Yeah, <laughs> most of them are. Yeah. <laughs> Including... This Magic Moment. Ah, oh, I love this song. Oh, my God. Starts with this rising and falling tremolo violin, which I love. Disney-esque sort of cinematic in a way. And the, the drums with the brushed snare is a really nice sound that I like. Yeah. Uh, you hear a lot on this, but it stood out to me on this one. And, oh, my God, this is a fairy tale, and Ben E. King is my fucking prince. <laughs> holy crap his voice is just so nice over these minor chords and you just get swept away the song is beautiful it is lovely and it's it, like I, I had said Disney-esque on some other stuff but this one is especially that sort of thing it's really really Disney yeah really good oohs and ahs yes very good <laughs> And it's kind of hard to talk about these tracks for more than a minute because there's not a lot to them. <laughs> yep. We like this one. Next up. Save the last dance for me. Bum, bum, bum. This has a Latin rhythm to it, which we get on this track and then the next one, I think. Uh, it's got a Latin guitar that shows up a little bit more. Um, yeah. And it's really pleasant. I like the tango-esque bass. Yeah, yeah. That sort of thing. And the lyrics on this track are really, like, I want to say progressive, but they're mostly just tame. Like, the whole idea is you can dance with anybody that you want to. You can dance. Yeah, you can but, dance. like, just remember that we are together and we're in a relationship, so save the last dance for me. Make sure that I'm the person that you come home to at night. Make sure that what we have is, is real and true, but you can still have as much fun as you want. And that's really sweet. Yeah, no need to, to keep a short leash. No need to be possessive. In a healthy relationship, this is what's going on. Yeah. And it's not it's not even like threatening, like, well, you know, you can do all that you want, but remember that I'm your man. It's like, no, 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 just, <laughs> like, remember that we have something special. Don't forget who's taking you home, and in whose arms you're gonna be. Yeah. It's it's so pleasant. I love oh, it. Oh, darling, save the last dance for me. Yeah, cha-cha-cha. it's a great song. <laughs> cha-cha-cha. It's got a little bit of the cha-chas in there. There's a little bit of the cha-chas. It's a bit of a tango track, a little bit. <laughs> A very commercialized tango track. That's true. <laughs> but that's just how it is. Yep. Next track up is called I Count the Tears. You got a heartbreak song with some na-na-nas going on in here. <laughs> so this track is really funny to me because I thought 
when I first heard it, I was like, wait, is this a the original version of a song that I apparently have heard a cover of, but it's from the same era? And then they kept going, and I'm like, oh, no. I think another band just stole this song. Oh, do tell. So there's a song by a little bit more rock and roll kind of band called The Grassroots that uh, is called uh, Live for Today or Let's Live for Today or something like that. And this song starts off with na-na-na-na-na-na late at night. Yeah. And Live for Today has more verses that start them off, but then when you get to the chorus, it's one, two, three, four, sha-la-la-la-la-la, live for today. And I'm like, oh, oh. my god. Wow. It's yeah. just the same. That it's is exactly the same. The same. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I funny. had a little bit of a panic attack when I first heard this song, because I was like, what is happening? Is the song that I remember, because it had been a while since I had heard the Grassroots song, admittedly. So I was trying to figure out, oh my god, am I just completely misremembering this song? Is there just a, a gap in what I remember from these songs that I've heard when I was a kid? And no, it's just that this song, which came before it, got totally ripped off by the, some white kids in a rock and roll band. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. That's kind of the whole thing about that era. Yep. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I just, oh, I found that really funny. Yeah, I guess we didn't really specify, but the Drifters are a black group. <laughs> that's yes. kind of important. <laughs> yeah. That really is what, it, that's pretty indicative of that era. Black groups go and do something amazing, and then white kids just kind of have it. Yeah. They're like, <laughs> oh, thanks. You made this for us? You made this? We can just play I this? I made this. <laughs> Gee Willikers, I made this at the Sock Hop. <laughs> yeah that's pretty much <laughs> yeah it's unfortunate but that's history <laughs> this song is also notable for being pretty much the only sad song on this album it's the only song that's really about heartbreak and it's sad and it's soft and it's nice and it sounds a lot like the other songs on this album yeah <laughs> it's got that 50s and 60s R&B bounce to it that doo-wop na-na-na's Etc. Yep. Not all that notable. It's a good song, though. I liked it. Next up, we've got Some Kind of Wonderful, which is not the song that I thought it was going to be based purely on the title. Not to be confused with She's Some Kind of Wonderful. <laughs> Talking about My Baby by Grand Funk Railroad. Yep. Uh, This song is soft and sweet and not a whole lot else. Yeah, pretty much. It's just a nice song. <laughs> a lot of these songs are nice. Yeah. It uh, is uh it is notable for being written by Jerry Goffin and his wife, who is infinitely more famous than he is, as I understand it, Carol King, who actually yes. has albums <laughs> on this list. So uh Yeah. We're gonna Which is awesome. Yeah. Um, they have another song right after this one, actually. Uh Let's get to yeah. that one, because that one's a lot more important to me. Yeah, there's I have nothing on this one. It's yep. just a good song. <laughs> Next one is called Up on the Roof. I mean, sorry, it's called Up on the Roof. 
Yeah. And <laughs> this song is one of the ones that made the heaviest rotations on uh, the radio that I heard. And it is so nice. It makes you feel like you are up on a roof staring up at the night sky. And that's really good because that is what it's about. Um, when this old world starts getting me down and people are just too much for me to face. And God help me if I haven't felt like that this yeah. year. <laughs> and this track is starts light on the backup vocals. There's not a lot until some oohs and ahs come in uh, before the chorus. Uh, and then, you know, they start doing the up on the roof and it's it's great <laughs> it's oh it's so pretty and this song is really interesting for some of the other songs that will come later on the album and we'll get to those and there's something really important about this song that kind of feeds into the rest of this album which is super interesting because it is a greatest hits album of songs that are all singles so get to those in a second but now yeah well, this, this this track has some really nice uh, string, bell, and horn flourishes throughout that yeah. layer really well on top of the oohs and ahs. Really like it. It's pretty. Uh, it's just yeah. pretty. There's room for two pretty. up on the roof, he says. Aww. That's romantic. That's sweet. <laughs> All these... I, I just love sort of the idealized version of love that we got in these songs from the 50s. Like, there are a lot of things about the 50s and 60s that were not idealized, and we shouldn't romanticize those. But yeah. it's just nice to have these little, like, aw, isn't that sweet kind of moment. Yeah, it, especially for black folks who are having a hard time in this era, especially. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's really good. Ba-da-dum, bum-bum, ba-da-dum. I'm not going to do the whole song. I was going to say. Like, but you, you were gonna... getting really worried, right? You just going? <laughs> no. Uh, the next song is on Broadway, and I fucking love this song. Yeah, it's great. It really stands out from the rest of them. It's not your typical doo-wop R&B. It's more of a unique style that I find hard to describe, but it you'd really have to hear is it, its own beast it's not in it's not even about the same things that any of these other songs are about no. like all these other songs are kind of about love in some way but then on broadway is about ambition i'm gonna be a star and that's really cool and the the tone of the track feels dramatically different from any of these other songs the writers on this one are cynthia Weil. Barry Mann, Hello? Jerry Lieber, and Mike Stoller. Barry Mann, hello? <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> oh, God. No, just the, M-A-N-N. The Discord timing didn't let that one land. That's okay. <laughs> we'll fix it in post. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann uh, wrote a bunch of different songs, including You've Lost That Love and Feelin', We've Gotta Get Out of This Place, and I think most notably on Broadway. Okay. And then Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller wrote a bunch of songs for one Elvis Presley. Yes, that's right. And then um, other amazing songs that also turned out to be really big singles, like Yakety Yak, 
Hound Dog, Jailhouse Rock, and Stand By Me, alongside Benny King. Yep, those two also wrote the earlier track on this record, Dance With Me. I don't know if we mentioned that. Uh, Co-wrote, at least. Yeah. But yes, very, very legendary songwriters in that regard. Uh, Lots of talent just all around on this record. I can't say enough good things about this song. It it feels so right for the tone that it's trying to strike. The writing is just really kind of fun and bouncy about a situation that's like, hey, I'm in a rough spot, but I'm not going to stop. I'm going to make it. Yeah. I'm going to get there. And then they let Ben King just kind of wail near the end. They just give him a little bit of improvisation. And every time that I hear this song in other recordings, because a lot of people kind of took it, and a lot of, you know, expats from these singer groups took this song and made their own little versions of it, they're all just kind of trying to hit what Ben E. King does on this recording. Uh, and some of them are pretty dang good. But I, uh, I just love this particular recording of it, so I'm glad that we got it on this album. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and the next track is called Under the Boardwalk, Boardwalk. No, it's just called Under the Boardwalk. <laughs> There's now two boardwalks. But uh, but that isn't the song, and this is another really good track. Holy shit. Uh, apparently Bruce Willis has a cover of this song. Are you kidding me? I don't know if it's that Bruce Willis, but Wikipedia is just linking me to that Bruce Willis. Yeah, he's got albums. Wow. Bruce Willis has R&B and pop albums. Yeah, there it is. Under the boardwalk. Well, this changes everything. I need to listen to some Bruce Willis. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, well, that's a side note for later. Um... (laughs) This song rules, though. Uh, This particular recording is a little bit more subdued. Uh... Because the lead singer, Rudy Lewis, passed away, and they brought on a former vocalist for the band, Johnny Moore. Um, And he does a really good job, but also is just a little bit chilled out for the kind of song that it is. And I kind of dig it. I kind of love it. Yeah. And this track has some uh, Cuban and, you know, Latin American music influence, notably with the rhythm section having the instrument and I will not be pronouncing this correctly, but Guiro uh, is what it looks like. And it has umla over the U, uh, which oh. is that, that notched wood block that you like, you push the stick over it and it makes like a ratchet noise. Oh yeah. that <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That one. Yeah. Uh, Love that. That's used on this track notably. And it gives it this sort of, beachy sort of tropical feel to it i feel yeah Um, along with just the general tone of the rhythm and everything and the chorus actually starts in a minor key and switches to a major key which is really unusual for something like this and it gives it a unique flavor i like it a lot it's a real good one Oh, the other thing. Okay, this is where we get up on the roof back. Oh. Uh, so you might notice, uh, if you look up the lyrics of this song, the first lyric is, Oh, when the sun beats... Oh, I gotta go higher for that. 
Oh, when the sun beats down and burns the tar up on the roof. Oh. And that, the up on the roof, gets pulled yeah. back in for the string parts right before the chorus. Oh, my God. It's amazing. You are right. Now, the coolest part about this is that this song was not written by the same writers as Up on the Roof. They were just referencing it. Yeah. They were That's referencing awesome. it through the band's discography. <laughs> which is the so cool. Drifter's expanded universe. Exactly. <laughs> God, that's oh. awesome. I like that a lot. And then we've got the actual direct sequel to Under the Boardwalk, which is a wild sentence for me to say. Yeah. I've got sand in my shoes. Under the Boardwalk was written by Arthur Resnick and Kenny Young. I've got sand in my shoes is written by Arthur Resnick and Kenny Young. Okay, I I thought that for a second, but I thought I was crazy, so I'm glad you said that. No, you're definitely <laughs> right, because the this one opens up with, Oh, the boardwalk's deserted, there's nobody down by the shore. And it has oh almost God. the exact same chord progression as Under the Boardwalk. And it has almost the exact same rhythm. Yeah, it has that wood scrapey thing, too. Yep. <laughs> and it also has the same sort of call-and-response chorus. Except this time yeah. it's... Sand in my shoes. <laughs> this is... Okay. <laughs> my first thought when I heard this song was, this is fucking Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> You're totally right? right. Right? You've been suckered like, into Gulf and Western territory. It has that tropical-ass guitar, like you're chilling on the beach. Mm-hmm. This is so Jimmy Buffett, or rather, <laughs> Jimmy Buffett is so this. Yeah, this came first, obviously. James William Buffett takes as much from this as he does from I don't know Hank Williams. Yeah, yeah. That this has that nice little guitar part. That's I hesitate to call a solo, but sort yeah. of is during the string break. That's kind of nice. Yeah, it's a it's a good <laughs> it's, little it's, one. It's there. It's trying to hit the same notes that Under the Boardwalk did, but you can kind of tell that there's a reason that most people don't do sequels for songs, because <laughs> they're, the, they're the same. Yeah. Well, I think you can do it well in a certain yeah. way, but... And I think these are all good songs. I agree. But when you put them back-to-back -back like this, it, it can be a little monotonous. Yeah. I do love, though, that we're now into part three of the fucking Up on the Roof saga. <laughs> oh, I love it. That is kind of great. I mean, yep. they, they were released, like, years apart, though, right? I guess so. I think they weren't on I the same... I... Yeah, they weren't on the same album, at the very least. No, they were all singles. Yeah, well, there, oh, are, other, no. there are other compilation albums, basically. So, yeah. the last time that they were together were not on the same disc. So, no. <laughs> yeah, that's the nature of singles. Yeah, but this is lest you think that we're crazy just for saying that the boardwalk is a reference. In the last verse, they go, "How we fell in love down by the sea," in the exact <laughs> same tone that they say in "Under the Boardwalk." So let's put the nail in that coffin. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty clear. Yep. The very last track on this record is called Saturday Night at the Movies. And this one has a little bit more of that lounge singing style to it, I think. And also some 
timpani and uh, horns and other fun stuff. This is a fun song. Fun is a very good word that you've given me to just just layer on top of this song, because that is exactly what it's about. Yeah. It's got a really bouncy rhythm to it. That boom, 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 that kind of thing. Yeah. I've been watching a lot of Cuphead recently, so it kind of reminds me of that whole beat that you use for, like, rubber hose animation. Yeah. You could definitely see some characters bobbing up and down to this. <laughs> you got a little, like, let's all go to the lobby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God. Oh, I, I love Cuphead. It's so good. We're not going to get too much into that, but it does say Technicolor and Cinemascope. <laughs> so, you know, that's fine. <laughs> And uh, the chorus is just so bouncy and snappy. Saturday night at the movies, who cares what picture you see? On a blanket <laughs> with my babies, where out? No, God damn it, that's that's the boardwalk again. Sorry. <laughs> okay, sorry. They're all really similar here. Yeah, uh, they crossed crossed over a bit. The writers on this one are Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann again. So. Hello. You gotta stop that. We can't do that. The man's Too not late. Barry Manilow. Too late. No, great <laughs> great song, though. Although yep. I can't really agree with the sentiment of who cares what picture we see. Because <laughs> I don't care who I'm with. I, I don't want to fucking sit through, like, Transformers 5 or something. You know? Sorry, hold on. What, what was that. the name? Transformers 5. Oh, yeah. Nah, you're right. <laughs> I can't remember the last night. Yeah, that's the one. Better be the uh, last one. <laughs> it will not be. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I, I, I understand it's a romantic sentiment. Yeah, but, but no, I'm sorry. <laughs> have some standards, <laughs> drifters. I mean, they didn't have transformers back then, but they probably had some crappy pictures. That's probably true. I mean, this is the era of, like, the B-movie, right? Uh, I mean, that never really ended. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I don't know, I just think of, like, sci-fi serial B-movies were really at their peak during that time, so it's like, yeah, sure, Mothman eats a goldfish. Whatever. I know we're some gonna, people who would love to see Mothman eat a goldfish. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. We gotta bail out of this review. <laughs> well yeah that that'll do it for the drifters golden hits really it's essential for oldies listening it's great it's a pleasant album full of staples of the era all of these songs are really strong and like i'm pretty sure on broadway probably just inspired a songwriter somewhere because i really do believe it is that good yeah, that's a really great track. It's so different from the rest of them. But they're all good, so definitely give The Drifter's Golden Hits a listen. If you want to put that on a hard mode, as opposed to the easy listening that you get from this, go check out Hole uh, and live through this, <laughs> which is, again, a very good album, but a bit more difficult material. Yeah, definitely. I really enjoyed both these records, so check them out tell us what you think. And if you want to let us know how you feel, you can do so at opalnebula.com. And if you would like to support either this show or any of the shows that we make at opalnebula.com, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash opalnebula. 27, what are we doing next time? 
We have some very exciting albums for next time. Ooh. We have Tumbleweed Connection by Elton John. Hey. Hell fucking yeah. Yep. And Z or Z by My Morning Jacket, which Ooh. is something I've heard a lot about from my friends. They really like My Morning Jacket, uh, alternative rock group. Uh, should be good. I've heard a little tiny bit of their music. I haven't heard a darn it's thing, good. so that's going to be an exciting and <laughs> experimental week for us. Yes. Should be good albums. Should be a good time. So listen to those if you want to do it in advance. <laughs> we will be. And have a gay old time. Bye-bye. Bye.